Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the most important documents in the New Testament. It's also one of the most misunderstood, at least by those who have read it. In the first session, we'll look at some basics about Paul's letters in general and Romans in particular, including how it's been interpreted down through the centuries. In part two, we consider alternative readings that do justice to what it must have been like to live for Christ in the Roman Empire. But let's get started with reading Romans again for the first time. Now, I have to admit that I have shamelessly borrowed this or adapted this title from two things. One, from a New Testament book by Marcus Borg called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. But the other one, the one that really inspired it, goes back further, and it's Kellogg's Corn Flakes slogan, Taste Them Again for the First Time. Maybe you remember it, maybe you don't. The premise, of course, is that the play on words again and the first time, the idea that it's an old thing and yet it could be read again anew, or in the case of cornflakes, tasted again for the first time anew. And it occurs to me that when we talk about reading Romans again for the first time, the truth is some people have never read it. It's hard to say who, but some people have never read it. You could go to church your whole life, I guess, and not really read it. Some have read it, but maybe not completed it. As it turns out, Romans is the longest of all the epistles. I think I, at one point, called it a long and winding road, borrowing from the Beatles. But I think also that some people who've read it, read all the way through it, just don't get it. And let's be honest, it is a very hard document to understand. In fact, the writer of Second Peter, referencing the letters of Paul, who would have been a contemporary, says there are some things in those letters that are hard to understand. Well, if somebody living in the first century, a scripture writer, contemporary of Paul, could say that about his letters, well, then we get it. And without question, Romans is the hardest one. People who have read it, they usually know little bits and pieces. There are some passages here and there that kind of rise up to the level of of um, kind of hero status or the usual suspects, however you want to call it. But if you ask people, so what do you remember about Romans? One of the passages often cited is Romans 1, and it's used to basically um, talk about homosexuality. We'll come back to that topic here in a little bit. Then there are verses like what's called the Romans Road for some people, mostly in the evangelical tradition, verses like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, or Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Probably one of the passages that a lot of people think about and find comforting is in chapter 7, when Paul writes, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Some people resonate with that in deep ways. There's also a beautiful verse at the beginning of chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another beautiful passage at the end of chapter 8 where, and it goes on and on, but Paul says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
And then, of course, there are troubling passages, not just the one on same-sex relations, but in Romans 13, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Well, obviously, that's a troubling kind of passage. So, in this first session, we're going to look at Paul and his letters, starting with just kind of the basics of who he was and what it meant for him to write these letters. It's important to remember he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. Not all Pharisees were alike, but as a Pharisee, that meant he was not a religious professional. Sadducees were the first century version of clergy, but not Pharisees. They were more like elders and deacons in churches. And in the case of Paul, his occupation was typically called tent maker. Uh, actually, he made what would, we would call awnings. So in the ancient theaters and stadiums where the elite would want to be shaded, they would have these awnings or over shops. And Paul did that as well as his contemporaries, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who are mentioned in Romans. Paul became a follower of Christ. The story is really well known from Acts chapter 9. It's often misunderstood. People seem to recall that Paul was knocked off a horse, which there's no mention of a horse, or they view it as his conversion to Christianity, which of course makes no sense. There was really no such thing as Christianity. Jesus was a Jew. His followers were Jews. But what Paul does become is a follower of this Christ who instead of persecuting Gentiles and those who are followers of this way or this Christian way, he becomes a follower of Christ who welcomes Gentiles. And that's quite the shift. Paul was acquainted with the disciples of Jesus, but he didn't know the historical Jesus. He didn't meet him. He had a ministry of about 30 years, and it, out of those 30 years, he wrote letters to congregations, mostly to ones that he established. If you read the letters of Paul, and I'll, I'll say more about those in a second, it's kind of interesting that there's nothing about the birth and ministry of Christ, nothing about his miracles, nothing about his teachings, his parables, his healings. It's kind of interesting. He's more focused on well, doing theology within these churches, in particular, speaking to the need for unity. In his 30 years of ministry, Paul only wrote seven letters that we know of. He wrote many more. We only have seven. Now, in the New Testament, there are a lot of letters that are ascribed to Paul, but only seven of them are undisputed, where we can say we know for sure that he wrote them. And one of those is Romans. I'll just mention the others briefly. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and Philemon. As for the Romans letter, which is what we're going to focus on, it's the last letter he wrote. It would have been late to mid-50s, first century, and about the time that he was writing to the Corinthians. We know that he was in Corinth when he wrote the letter to the Romans and that he was in the home of Gaius. You can find this in the end of Romans chapter 16. He mentions this. We know that 
the letter to the Romans was, like all of his letters, dictated to what's called an amanuensis or a secretary. In the case of Romans, we happen to know the name of the person. His name is Tertius, because in Romans 16, he even says, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. So it's kind of an unusual little tidbit. This, though, Romans is the only letter that he wrote to a congregation that he didn't establish or visit. He hopes to get to visit them, but that's not exactly how it turns out. And then the last thing I would just say is that it was a letter that was delivered by Phoebe. If, again, if you turn to Romans 16, you'll see this. He commends Phoebe. Uh, she's a, a, a member of the church in the province of Corinth. And she's given the task of delivering this letter, which would have meant that she read it aloud in small gatherings and possibly interpreted it and answered questions along the way. But it shouldn't go without notice that Paul's most important letter was handed over to a woman whom he describes as, uh, really as a minister. The Greek word there can be translated as a, a deacon. As for Romans itself, it's really considered Paul's ultimate work. It's designated along with First and Second Corinthians and Galatians as the four most important writings. It's what German scholars call the Hauptbriefe. It comes first among his letters in the New Testament after you get through with Acts, but that's because it's the longest and the letters are arranged from longest to shortest. Like all of his letters, there are two parts. There's theology and there's practice. And in this case, it's 11 chapters of theology followed by practice. We'll come back to that in a little bit because chapter 12 kind of signals a different aspect of Romans. And then last, as is typical with his letters, it's focused on being a community in Christ. Paul knows that there's tension between the Jews and the Gentiles who make up the congregation, and he cares very much about healing that rift. I often joke that Paul uses y'all language. That's the Texas Greek version, I suppose. But it's true, throughout Romans, he uses y'all. It's the you plural. He doesn't address individuals. He addresses them as a collective. It's really fascinating in chapter 12, and again, we'll come back to it, but he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, the bodies is plural, all of them, but the sacrifice is in the singular. This is kind of the theology of Paul. Okay, so there's your sort of basic background about Paul, about his letters, and about the one that we call Romans. Kind of some little tidbits. But let's think for a little bit about how Romans has come down to us. What I mean is what scholars call reception criticism or the history of reception. How has Romans been received and read and interpreted down through the centuries? Now, there, there are so many places that we could dive in, but there are three key moments that stand out. One is on Augustine, and original sin. A second is on the Protestant reformers in the 16th century and their focus on faith and salvation. And then the third, a much more recent one, is conservatives 
reading Romans 1 on homosexuality. So we'll just talk a little bit about these three and then I want to throw a curveball in a sense. So Augustine. Augustine was uh, a fifth century thinker. He was a philosopher, um, a, a teacher of rhetoric actually, and who was converted to Christianity. Living in the fifth century, he became one of the most influential thinkers in Christian history. Even people who've never heard of him have been influenced by his teaching. He was a monk, an Augustinian um, a, a monk, and who struggled with sexual desires. So in becoming a monk, of course, he was supposed to renounce worldly things. Well, he had had sexual debauchery was part of his life before coming to Christ, and he still struggled with it. He famously says in his confessions that, um, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. So struggling with sexual desires, he believed that sin was inherited because all of us are born from a sexual act. So he associated the sexual act with impurity, and therefore anybody born was therefore impure. But more so, his theology was based on a reading of Romans chapter 5. Unfortunately, he relied on Jerome and the Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate. Augustine, because he lived in Africa and, and therefore in the West, couldn't read Greek. He could read Latin. So when he turned to Romans chapter 5 in the Latin, verse 12, Romans 5.12 says this in the Latin, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into this world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned. The reference, of course, is this one man would be Adam and Genesis chapter 3. But you hear that last little phrase, in whom all have sinned. Jerome's translation has us all somehow present in Adam. So when Adam sinned, we were all there, and somehow when we were born, we were all sinners. The New Revised Standard Version, working from the Greek text, translates it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Notice, because all have sinned. Some say that's still not the best translation. One thing we know is the Greek cannot be made to read in whom. We weren't in Adam. Some people say, well, maybe a better way to say it is that through Adam's sin, death entered into the world, but the reason that we're sinners is because we've all sinned. The problem, of course, is that the doctrine of original sin, which can be traced back to Augustine and his reading of Romans, it's ingrained in church psyche and even in our culture in some measure. The doctrine of original sin, however, is not really a Jewish concept that Paul would have naturally embraced. Jews don't read the story of Genesis and think, well, this is how sin entered into the world and we're all sinners because Adam and Eve sinned. No, Jews, Jews believe, well, yeah, this is sin, but God is still faithful to people. They're not banished to hell. They are no longer in the garden. They live east of Eden. That's that lovely phrase. But they're still in relationship with God. 
The doctrine of original sin, by the way, is not a common teaching among our friends in the Orthodox tradition. Christianity, as you may well know, has three families. There's the Protestant and Catholic, which we know a little bit about. I'll say more about that in a minute. But also the Orthodox. The Orthodox Christians in the East, they read the Greek. So they never had a doctrine of original sin. Which brings us to another monk, in particular Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, kind of ironic. One of the debates down through the years is, was Paul a theologian writing theology, or was he a pastor writing letters? If he was a theologian, then what he was doing in Romans and elsewhere was articulating theological doctrines. If he was a pastor, he was responding to certain situations. I think the truth is he was a combination of the two. But his theology was always in service of what was going on in those situations. So in a sense, Paul was a pastoral theologian. But what happened in the 16th century, starting with Martin Luther, was um, it's very contextual. Martin Luther was a monk, Roman Catholic, loved his church, but there were a lot of abuses. Uh, these are well documented. Uh, there were popes that had, some, had mistresses and lots of priests that had, had mistresses. There was illiteracy among some of the clergy, certainly a lot of illiteracy among the laity. And so Luther, looking at things like indulgences, where you could buy a document that would forgive your sins and get you through purgatory, these things were troubling to Luther, and he didn't want to start anything called a Lutheran church. Far from it. He wanted to restore his beloved Roman Catholic church to what it should be. So looking around at these abuses, in particular things like selling indulgences, Luther, Calvin, other reformers, they started to read Paul and others, and in particular Romans, about doctrines of how is it that a person's sins can be forgiven. So for instance, Romans 3.23, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Nothing in that verse about needing a priest or buying a document. Being right with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for any who believe. Or a few verses later, Romans 3.26, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This kind of reading permeated the reformers and their writings. And they can really, in a sense, be traced back to one verse earlier in Romans, in the very first chapter, Romans 1.17. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Turns out, Paul in that verse is quoting from Habakkuk, Old Testament book, chapter 2, verse 4. But Paul omits a pronoun, and it allows for two possible readings. It could be the one who is righteous will live by his or her faith, as in our faith. Or it could be the one who is righteous will live by my faith as in God's faith, or better, God's faithfulness. A lot of scholars on Paul 
have in the last 20 or 30 years started to question these passages about faith in Jesus, arguing instead that it can better be translated the faithfulness of Jesus or the faithfulness of God. This would be a radical change in how to read Romans, how to read Paul, how to read the New Testament, and one very consistent with Jewish thought. Jews didn't think you had to do anything to be saved. How did they get out of Egyptian bondage? God saved them from it. God who is faithful saved them from it. They didn't do anything other than cry out. The third way that Romans has been received, and I mentioned it's more recent, is conservatives on homosexuality. The passage is long, I won't read all of it, but it's in Romans chapter 1, starting around verse 26 through the end of that chapter. Passages like, their women exchange natural intercourse for unnatural. You notice that says nothing about same sex between women. And in the same way also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. So there you do have a reference to men having sex with men. The verse goes on, men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. This was a passage widely quoted during the AIDS crisis. And this passage is considered one of the so-called six or seven passages on homosexuality in the Bible. It's really hard to trace the beginnings of anti-homosexual readings of Romans 1. The early fathers mostly saw it referring to debauched goddess religions. But here's what we know. There's lots of good scholarship now on the cultural context in the Mediterranean world. Remember, we're reading a book or a letter called Romans. And we know that the Roman elites within the empire, the emperor and those with lots of means, often used young boys for sex. Or male and female slaves were abused by their owners. So the, we're not going to deal with this in, in length, but this passage really doesn't have anything to do with same-sex unions in our day. Um, the Bible knew nothing about sexual orientation. It's really talking about Roman elites abusing young boys or their slaves. It's interesting, by the way, if you keep reading in that chapter at the end, Paul in essence says they deserve to die. But it's fascinating because besides this sexual abuse, he talks about a whole host of things like murder, gossip, boastfulness, and even rebelliousness toward parents. A lot of people have latched on to the sexuality, ignoring things like gossip and rebelliousness toward parents, and I don't too, know too many people who would recommend some kind of death penalty for that. The other thing I would just say is that Paul, in some sense, in the end of one chapter 1, is setting the reader up. Because chapter 2, and remember there are no chapter breaks when he wrote, the very next thing he says is a warning against judging others. Okay, so let me just stop for a moment and, and kind of put this in context. Down through the centuries, roughly 2,000 years, 
Paul's letter to the Romans has come down to us in at least these three ways. And regardless of one's position on these three topics, the focus has missed two very obvious things. The first, Paul writes to Christ's followers living in Rome. They lived in Rome. Let that sink in for a minute. This was the capital of the Roman Empire, the home of the Caesar. Imagine writing to the church in Moscow. Imagine writing to the church in Berlin. Imagine writing to the church in D.C. So one of the questions for us is what will Paul say not just to the saints living there, but when we pick up Romans, what will he say to the Roman Empire and about the Roman Empire under which they live? The second thing is that Paul writes to a mixed congregation, Jew and Gentile. We know that. The list of names at, at the end of the letter is pretty good evidence along with a lot of other internal things. What might Paul's letter be saying to that church then that was divided across those ethnic and religious lines? And what might Paul's letter be saying to us, persons in our day with different views on a whole host of topics? That's what we'll look at next week.